Hello, I'm Chris Smith, and this week we have a second special edition of The Naked Scientists recorded in New Zealand, where I teamed up with Simon Morton from Radio New Zealand's This Way Up programme. At the Paramount Theatre in Wellington, we were joined by a panel of six scientists to talk about their work, including how ultraviolet light is being used to make plants grow better, new treatments for multiple sclerosis, we focus on global warming with a look at how it's affecting the Antarctic ice sheet and temperatures in the deep oceans, and, as we're in New Zealand, we'll be hearing how computer scientists are tracking down their elusive national bird, the kiwi. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Up first, though, is Nicola Gaston, a materials scientist at Victoria University of Wellington, where she works on nanoparticles. In other words, the science of the very small. A nanoparticle is simply something that's very small. So a nanometer is something which is much, 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 much smaller than a metre. But from my point of view, because I deal with nanoparticles from the other point of view as a chemist, I think about atoms and building materials up from individual atoms. So I think of tens or hundreds or thousands of atoms being nanoparticles. What can we do with them? Why are scientists so interested or excited by nanoparticles? In general, it's because they have a whole lot of surprises. So their properties change really, really dramatically. For example, some of the nanoparticles I'm interested in, you can add an atom or you can take an atom out, and that changes things like the melting temperature. Is it not just because you get to play with really fantastic toys to play with these really tiny... All my work's on computers, so that kind of might seem really boring, but the ideas behind what works and what doesn't work are really, really interesting. So what particles, what nanoparticles do you play with then? Mostly gallium. Um, In general, metals. Um, Metals are interesting because it's not just the number of atoms that matter, it's the number of electrons that matters a lot. Uh, So I spend a lot of time just counting electrons and things, which is fun. How do you count an electron? Um, You you count them, literally, (laughs) with your fingers, depending on how many there are, (laughs) Um, with a computer, more commonly. What's the goal of your research? The goal is really just figuring out um, mysteries, really, that exist in the literature on nanoparticles, so things that have been done experimentally but that we don't really have a good understanding of. Um, And that's, in particular, what motivates my, my work on melting. How can you apply this? Where am I going to get some value? Is it going to be smaller cell phones or faster broadband or tastier kebabs? Where's the value for me? Well, I I talk about melting, and that's kind of a good example because everybody knows what it's like for a thing to melt um, and that things melt at a particular melting temperature, so ice um, at zero degrees, for example. Uh, So... The, the general paradigm is that when you make something really small, it gets less stable in some sense. And so if it gets less stable, then it becomes easier for it to melt. And so nanoparticles melt in general at much lower temperatures than bulk things, things that we're used to. And so there are real consequences for that. I mean, I do computational science, so you think about Moore's law and silicon computer chips. If you make those small enough, that has to affect their melting temperature at some point. And understanding why and understanding how is really important. Now, why have you got a cup of tea there? Um, at the moment, it's because I'd really like a cup of tea, but, um, but I won't drink it. Uh, unfortunately, I played with it earlier, so I really shouldn't. I'm going to take the tea bag out, because it might just get in the way, and I'm going to take the tea bag out with this really ordinary spoon. I've got it there because I'd like to demonstrate what happens when you play with a piece of gallium. So I've got another teaspoon here. Which can, we, is... can I just have a look at this? So this yeah, is a. Oh, this is gallium. I've got to say I'd never heard of gallium. I thought it was a type of boat. <laughs> it's a galley. 
Is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so this, this just is a silver spoon, hmm. effectively. It's, well, it's, not, it. it's about the same weight as a normal teaspoon. Yep. And this is made of gallium. That's made of gallium. I made it myself, so I can... Oh! Okay. <laughs> Have you, um... <laughs> I, I brought a stair for a reason. I, I, I... I have just broken the gallium <laughs> teaspoon. What cost is that? Cost a New Zealand taxpayer? Is that your research budget for next year? Gone. I, I'm going to have to tell Frank Natali, who, who gave me the gallium for that teaspoon, that you broke it. I do have a spear, so I did bring, bring another one for good reason. Good I'm going scientist. To, to look and disprove it disapprovingly, you know. Um, so, shall I, shall I head on with the. Yeah. <laughs> so, so tell us, why um, have you got a gallium spoon? So I've got a gallium spoon because I'd like to show you what's different between this spoon and the spoon that I used to pull the, the um, tea bag out with. So this spoon makes a nice ding when I ding it on the glass. If I do this one carefully, it makes a very similar sound. Um, One's a stainless steel teaspoon, the other one is the gallium yes. teaspoon. Uh, and if you inspect it, you've still got some pieces of gallium over there, I think. You can, uh, <laughs> gallium shrapnel. You can, yeah. Um, yeah, you, can, you can scrape it with your nail and it, don't eat it. <laughs> it's too late. He's eaten it. <laughs> Goodness, I knew I should have done the safety talk first. No eating the gallium teaspoon. But it just has this one curious property, which is that when I stick it in this glass of tea... You're going to stir the tea with the I'm gallium spoon. I'm going to spoon. stir the tea with the gallium spoon. And then I'm going to... Oh, oh I might, wow. I've lost some of the gallium spoon already, and it's I didn't break it's, it. It's gone. Yeah, it's, it's gone. I'll, I'll see if I can get it to, to become slightly more so liquid. So where's the, ga- the gallium spoon appears to be dissolving or disappearing? Where's it gone? It's just hitting the bottom of the, of the cup. So it's, it's melting? Uh, it's melting, yeah. This is a metal? It is a metal. That has melted in a cup of tepid tea? Yes, the tea's been there for a while. So hey, what's the tea made be? of? <laughs> well, that's a pretty ropey coffee in New Zealand, but blimey, I won't go near that. Is it just the temperature doing that? It is just the temperature. Yep. And why does gallium melt at such a low temperature then? Well, gallium melts at such a low temperature because it has a very strange structure. So instead of um, being composed like most metals in a structure where all of the atoms have pretty much the same environment, they're sitting there interacting with each other in a nice isotropic, nice symmetric way. Um, In gallium, they they form sort of a covalent bond between pairs of atoms, and then those pairs of atoms arrange themselves in a much more complicated structure than you'd have with other metals. And why does that make it melt more easily? Well, it it means that it it behaves a little bit more like a molecular compound, so something um, more like ice, perhaps, where you've got molecules which are arranged into a solid, and you've got relatively weak interactions between those molecules holding the crystal together. And so molecular compounds tend to melt at lower temperatures than something like a metal. I think the Victorians used to do that, didn't they, as a sort of party trick? It's quite a good party trick. I, I'll, I'm kind of inclined to pour off the tea and see but what's left it, in the bottom. Is it very poisonous, though? If you were to drink that, would you be in trouble? Oh, I wouldn't want to. Um, okay. The tea itself probably doesn't have much gallium in it at this point. So you, you were mentioning that you know, this might have relevance to computers and things. So how is this relevant to making better computers? Well, my research is not so much focused on understanding the bulk, but I'm interested in nanoparticles of this stuff. And in contrast to the bulk here, if you have 30, 50 atoms of gallium, then you can show experimentally, and that's been shown experimentally, that you have melting temperatures which are much, much higher, so 600 degrees. Oh, so it loses this funky behaviour. It loses this funky behaviour so when you make nanoparticles. most things when you make nanoparticles, the reverse is true, but yes. gallium actually for some reason becomes harder to melt when it gets smaller. Yes, so something completely different is going on, and we know that because of the experiments that have shown it. What we don't know is why, 
And to answer why, you really have to understand how it is melting, what is happening between all the atoms as it melts. And we can really only get at that sort of information by doing um, what we call ab initio simulations or first principle simulations, where all we're putting into the calculations we're doing is what we know about gallium, which is that it's got a a nucleus with a charge of 31 and 31 electrons, and then we put a bunch of those atoms together in in a computer and we simulate the way that they interact at different temperatures. And then if we can reproduce the the experimental results, the experimental melting temperatures, then we can go back in and and see how how they're actually melting. And once you can understand that, does that mean we can make maybe other nanoparticles or particles of gallium which don't melt? at really low temperatures. So we'll we'll be able to have better functions for our nanoparticles. In principle. I mean, you you might not be able to change what you have exactly with gallium because that's uh, a function only of the material itself, but it definitely gives you tools to understand and to predict what what would happen to different materials. Hey, thanks so much, Nicola. Nicola Gaston and the fabulous disappearing teaspoon, which I've ingested a bit of, so uh, (laughs) and feeling okay. Nicola Gaston from Victoria University of Wellington. You're listening to The Naked Scientist this way up with me, Simon Morton from Radio New Zealand National and Dr Chris Smith. Now, rates of skin cancer are up over 100% in young people over the last decade, and this is down to exposure to ultraviolet, or UV rays, which are present in sunlight, um, which does damage to DNA in our skin. But despite being natural sunbathers, plants don't suffer the same fate. In fact, UV boosts plant growth, and this is a discovery which could have major commercial advantages. Dr Jason Wargent is from Massey University Institute of Agriculture and Environment. What do plants do to avoid getting sunburned then? Well, one of the amazing things about plants is that they're constantly confronted with these challenges throughout their life, from an animal wanting to eat them to a disease wanting to infect them. And yet they're basically unable to move. So one of the big exciting things for us as plant scientists is to figure out how plants deal with these problems, but without being able to run away from trouble. And sunlight, I guess, is the ultimate dilemma for a plant, really. Uh, Plants need light to be able to grow through photosynthesis. But we know that too much of the wrong kinds of light can be damaging to a plant, potentially. And the UV spectrum is is part of that part of sunlight, which can potentially cause damage to plants as it can humans and other life. And what we're trying to work out here is is how plants deal with that by essentially making a a sunscreen of their own. Because they can't slip, slop, slap, can they? Plants can, when they start responding to different kinds of, different parts of sunlight, they can manufacture compounds in the upper parts of their leaf, which can shield them from that excess uh, UV which can potentially cause DNA damage or damage to its photosynthetic machinery if it didn't have that protection there. Is there an advantage for the plant, apart as well as being able to keep that UV away, is there another advantage to producing these natural sunscreens? Yes, so there's some really amazing overlaps with the kinds of functions these compounds do in plants. So they're, they're making these compounds and we think they first evolved so that plants could be protected from sunlight. But they have crossover functions in plants. So some of these compounds are the same kinds of compounds which are making leaves less tasty to an insect that wants to chew on them, or maybe affecting how plant can defend itself from disease. And, of course, then there's the the ultimate uh, potential human nutrition benefits, which we might take advantage of as well. I did read somewhere that... um scientists have been studying edelweiss, the plant that lives quite high up in the mountains, and those leaves make lots of little hairs on the leaf, and the hairs 
have hairs, and the hairs are on the order of the, the size of ultraviolet rays, so they sort of interfere, or, or the, the ultraviolet rays get diverted inside or pushed inside the hair where there's some water, and it uses the water to sort of soak up the energy, and in that way it stops it getting near the leaf surface. So there's all these really cool adaptations that plants have, have made over time or evolved over time, and a lot of plants have hairs on their leaves, and a lot of those hairs contain some of the sunscreening, the many, many different kinds of compounds that different plants might make, and they're all carrying out a similar function. And um, those hairs, we, we call them trichomes, uh, have a good function in protecting the plant too. And they have other roles too. They might, again, stop insects chewing, and they might be able to help with, um, with drought stress and these kinds of things as well. This is a very nice tweet here from Diana Gordon who says, do plants get an analogy of cancer? Can plants nonetheless get some form of tumour because of ultraviolet? So it's a similar process comparing plants to humans um, in terms of we're talking about DNA damage. And when that damage happens, uh, in humans, of course, it may result in some form of skin cancer. In, in plants, we're really talking about, about damage which could accumulate and affect the, the life of that plant. And plants have always this small amount of DNA damage that might be going on, and they use that as a way of detecting what they're doing in their environment. But, of course, if that damage becomes too great, uh, like we think was potentially happening around the time first plants tried to evolve this kind of protection, then they've had to dig themselves out of trouble that way. So how are you using ultraviolet to try to get plants to grow better then? So the responses that plants switch on when they come into contact with UV, uh, not least the sunscreening response, but other things too, they can change colour. But plants change the shape and size of their leaves, they change the thickness of their leaves, and they change many, many other things about how they grow. And there is now a good overlap. Now we're moving past our concerns, or partly past our concerns, around ozone depletion and damage. We're moving towards a space where we think that some of these characteristics in plants might actually be a really good thing in, in agriculture because this, this predisposition, this small stress creating a, a good outcome, we may be able to exploit that when we're growing uh, crops for food. And we've seen that with other uh, plants like grapes, for example. They like a heart, you know, they treat the mean and you get a lovely Merlot, isn't it? I mean, That's right, a, yeah. Is that the thing? They need a little bit of stress to sort of then flourish. Yeah, and maybe that's similar to humans too, right? <laughs> a little bit of stress brings out the best in people, or if you go to the doctors when you're young and uh, get an inoculation, you're getting a little bit of something bad, um, a mini stress. How are you seeking to exploit this then? Would you see sort of greenhouses full of lots of plants with... UV exposure to, to turn on this response and in that way you're fooling the plants into thinking they need to grow better or defend themselves so you get a better crop or something. Yeah, that's exactly right. So if you think about some of the ways we're growing crops at the moment, there is this increase in the use of lights indoors uh, but also strategically deploying these wavelengths which usually aren't used in growing crops indoors you could switch on these mechanisms in plants and then they may still go outside anyway, like many plants do after their, their nursery phase, or they may stay indoors, and we can take advantage of those responses. If you look at the major stresses crops encounter, aspects like disease are a big concern for growers, and with changing climate, disease is becoming even more of a concern in crops. So if we have a a range of ways to affect things like disease control, then we have another tool in our armoury and we are now developing devices which can deploy UV, which would potentially sweep around a glass house, giving that a little bit of stress. The plants then go on into the rest of the growing cycle.
Thanks so much, Jason. Jason Wargent is from Massey University Institute of Agriculture and Environment. Now, multiple sclerosis is a condition that's caused by immune cells attacking parts of the nervous system. And unfortunately, New Zealand has one of the highest incidences of this disease in the world. Dr. Anne Laflamme is based at Wellington's Maligan Institute of Medical Research, where she's working on new ways to treat MS. Hello. Hi. Good to have you with us. So first of all, tell us a little bit more about MS and, and also why it's so common here. Yeah, well, you, you stole my thunder there. It's Sorry. all... <laughs> so multiple sclerosis is a neurological disease, and it is all about the immune system attacking specific components found in the brain and in the spinal cord, which is what your central nervous system is. And the, in fact, the name itself... Uh, sclerosis means scars. So it's talking about the multiple lesions um, and inflammatory of, of immune cells that form within the brain. And that causes all of the symptoms. And the, what sorts of symptoms do people get? Well, it's a, a huge variety. I think there are over 50 symptoms you could have. It could be loss of coordination, uh, blurred vision, visual, other visual disturbances, fatigue. There's also disruption of balance motor movement, a range of different things. The first thing to think about is how your nervous system works, and it works by neurons signaling to each other. And for them to signal, they need to pass this signal over a long distance, and usually it's through an axon, so it's a long extension of one cell to another. Now, to get that signal across, you need to insulate that signal And very much like an electrical wire has an insulation around it, so your neurons have what's called a myelin sheath that protects that axon and insulates the signal. It's a bit like the sort of on the copper wire with the red or the blue sort of sheathing, is that? (laughs) Exactly. It It is. Now, and if you remove that, uh, that covering, then you'll cause a short circuit. And that's pretty much what is happening, is that you are preventing that signal from really reaching its target. But why does it happen in just some bits of the nervous system? Well, it only happens in the brain or the spinal cord and in areas where you have these myelin sheaths. So it's only but the, in but those But the brain's areas. full of myelin, isn't it? And so is it the spinal is. cord, lots of it. So why do just little patches get picked on? Exactly why those particular patches... Uh, are hit, nobody knows. And what's even more confounding is the fact that in different people, these lesions will appear in different areas, and even in the same person, over time, the lesions will occur in different areas. In some area, it may occur, it will resolve, and then another lesion may occur in another area. And so if you look at how the disease presents... Uh, one of the major forms of this disease is a relapsing remitting form, which means people have distinct episodes or attacks. And it's during that time that that demyelination, the removal of that sheath occurs. And so then you have short-circuiting, you have it, but only in that specific area of the brain, wherever that lesion is. There is another kind of broad form of the disease, which is probably the other 50% of the people, which is a progressive form, where you don't have distinct relapses, but you have a progressive accumulation of disability. And in that case, you're having that demyelination, that progressive demyelination occurring. 
And so why, why is this so common in New Zealand? Is this a genetic thing? Do you think it's an environmental thing? What do you think is driving that? It's both of those. We don't know exactly why, but we do know that there is a, a latitude association. So the farther from the equator you are, the m- more frequent, the more prevalent the, the disease is. And in fact, even in New Zealand, you can see that there is almost a threefold difference uh, between the uh, prevalence in Northland and Southland. So in Southland, it's, it's three times higher. So you're more likely. And it's believed part of that latitude has to do with sunlight and vitamin D. And again, sunlight's important in the generation of vitamin D, but sunlight in and of itself, independent of vitamin D, is protective. So every time people tell you, oh, stay out of the sun, get away from it, in fact, the sun is a very important thing um, in our health. Do we know why vitamin D and sunshine reduces your risk of getting this? There, uh, people are actively researching that, but we know that both of those, both vitamin D and sunlight, have effects on the immune system because it gets right back down to what is driving this disease, and it's the immune system. The immune system targeting myelin, this particular component, and saying, this is bad, we have got to get rid of it. And by destroying that myelin, there is that uh, disruption in the nerve impulses, and eventually you can even have neuronal loss. You can kill off the neurons. Can we look at therapies? Is there a therapy today? (laughs) Yes, there are therapies, but... Uh, Unfortunately, all of the the therapies are for the relapsing remitting form. And part of that is because for years we have believed that the way the immune system is causing all of this problem is that it's the immune system from outside of the brain, outside of the central nervous system, infiltrating into the brain and causing these lesions, causing the disruptions. And so our therapies have really focused on that moment that the immune system is driving into the central nervous system. So some of the most effective therapies we have target migration, so prevent immune cells from getting into the central nervous system. I mean, even for years, we believed that the brain was immune-privileged. We, we now know that it's not true. It's not so privileged. So what, what are you doing to try to, to mm. get around the problems of the, or the constraints of the present treatments? What are, your, what are you okay. offering instead? Well, so the thing is, as I said, all of these are targeting these relapsing-remitting form. And that is about 50% of the people, or the 50% of the MS patients in New Zealand have relapsing-remitting. The other 50% have this progressive, this chronic uh, and progressive accumulation disability. And there are no treatments for that form. So right now, our focus is trying to find treatments for that form. And to do that, we have to look at how the immune involvement is occurring in a very different way. So now we're not thinking about how the immune system throughout the whole body is affecting it, but how it's happening within the central nervous system, within the brain. So looking at the resident immune cells that are there and trying to shift. um, And what are you doing to those cells? What are you trying to persuade them to do differently? We're trying to tell them to turn off or just to calm down a bit. Most of it is just calming down. Well, thank you, Dr. Anne Laflamme from the Maligan Institute of Medical Research. Thank you. Now, climate and Earth's oceans, 
Uh, there's a project called Argo, which is a system for observing the temperature, salinity and currents of the Earth's oceans. It's been operational since the early 2000s, and the data it provides are used in climate and oceanographic research, and a special interest is to quantify the ocean heat content, also known as OHC. It consists of a fleet of 3,600 drifting profiling floats which have been deployed worldwide, and each of these floats weighs some 20 to 30 kilos, and oceanographer Philip Sutton from New Zealand's National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research has brought one along for us to see. This is actually a smaller one. The, the second generation is smaller to allow for the fact that the scientists are getting older. <laughs> can you just describe it for everyone and the people maybe sitting at the back can you just describe it and talk us through what you've got there please um, yep this is a uh, most Argo floats look pretty much like this they're, they're all a fairly standard design but there are a number of different manufacturers around the world this one's called a Solo 2 and it's made in San Diego and is a slightly smaller one so it's got a metal tube of just over a metre long on the top we've got an antenna that communicates to GPS for positioning and also uses Iridium Globe, Global Cell Phone Network for sending data and can have two-way communication so the engineers can talk to the float and, and change its mission. Is it good at conversation then? It's much better than it was in the old days, but it's, yeah, it's, it's still pretty uh, stunted. It floats vertically, just laid it down here so it didn't fall over, only about that much above the surface. So it's so mostly like underwater. A foot above the surface. Yeah, well, a few inches of the hull and the full antennas okay. above the, the surface. And the, the diameter is somewhat 15 centimetres or so, isn't yep. it? And how would you deploy that then? You just drop it off a boat? There, there are two different ways of deploying them. One is you lower them gently off a boat. We <laughs> <laughs> gently. try to avoid dropping. Well, how much do they cost, Philip? They, uh, about, this is about 20,000 US. They're, they're so. not cheap then, are they? <laughs> no, no, they're not cheap. But on the other hand, it's much, much cheaper than taking a ship out. Sure. You know, research vessels run fifty to 100,000 a day to have So is it like when you see the lorry going down the motorway and your heart sinks because there's a bloke on the back putting cones, shutting a lane <laughs> of the motorway? Is it sort of like that? The boat goes along and you drop one off at certain distances? Or how do you decide where to put them? We decide where to put them really based on where there are floats already and how old the ones that are in there are. The floats have a design life of about five years, so as they're getting old, we think they're about to create a gap in the ocean. 3,000 floats was the original density design. Um, there's about 3,600 there now. Floats around, it goes down to 1,000 metres, floats around with the currents at 1,000 metres for about nine days, and the, once it's down to 2,000, it then comes back up to the surface and collects the data on its way up, which this is the unit at the top here that does the sensors. It collects it on the way up because that's seeing clean water as it comes up. It's not in the wake of the instrument. And then once it's on the surface, it transmits its position and the profile data off to satellite and does it all again. So for five years, you should get a profile out of it every 10 days. So and just to describe it, it is a little bit like a scuba tank, isn't it? Mm. Uh, same, it's a bit longer than a scuba yeah. tank, and it has almost like a sort of a snorkel coming out the end and then an antenna. When they die, they tend to die at depth. So the hardest part for them to do is to pump the bladder up when they're at depth. So the way they go up and down is by inflating and deflating an external bladder so that changes their volume and, and that initial inflating of the bladder is, is the hardest part for the battery so they tend to die at depth where they're not I know I've do had a lot that happen to me, it's very uncomfortable yeah. um, <laughs> Can you talk us through actually how that works then? That looks intriguing What's this, that? This thing, here is, here with yeah, this thing here is a Cartesian diver it's called which you can find how to build them on the internet and basically it's just a coke bottle or something with a little eyedropper inside and the eyedropper's been weighted until it's just about neutrally buoyant, we call it, which is when it only just floats. 
And then if you squeeze on the outside of the bottle, what happens is the eyedropper bulb gets squeezed in. And of course that means that you've got less volume, you've got the same mass, so the density goes up, so the eyedropper sinks. And then when you let go of the bottle, the bulb bounces back, more volume, it comes back to the surface. So that's basically exactly how an Argo float goes up and down. It goes up and down by changing its volume. So something squeezes a, a bladder equivalent to your eyedropper inside yeah. there, and that changes the, the density of the The density, device. that's right. So you can't well. change the mass, but you can change the density. So in the bottom here, there's a, there's a rubber bladder, and inside there's a, a very powerful pump and an internal um, bladder with some hydraulic oil in it, and it just cycles that oil from the inside to the outside. Christopher Howe wants to know on Twitter, can we stick a, a camera on this to see what it's like at two kilometres down? Um, you could, and people have put cameras on them. You can put a number of these ones. The standard floats just run temperature and salinity, which is what we care about for physical oceanography. But more and more people are putting other sensors on them for biological measurements, dissolved oxygen and, and chlorophyll and, and fluorescence and transmissometers, which measure how much particles there are in the water, a whole bunch of different things. And people have used cameras. The catch with cameras is they're kind of expensive on batteries. So, you know, the, then the float life goes down. Philip, what have you discovered? What have you actually found out through the Argo network? Um, Apart from that it's a lot of money's bobbing around in the ocean. <laughs> well, us oceanographers really needed Argo because, you know, atmospheric scientists have a huge benefit that people collect data for weather. And then you can use that data that we collected for weather to then go back and do climate research. In the oceans, really, you don't collect any data unless someone goes out there and, and does it. And historically, that had to be by ships, which were very slow and very expensive and very painstaking work to lower a probe from a ship down to the bottom of the ocean, bring it back up. It's all done on a winch. So every station takes, you know, in deep water six or seven hours. And then you move along and you do the next one. So hideously expensive and, and very painstaking. And not global coverage. Funnily enough, there were basically no data in the southern, in the southern oceans in winter. Hard to believe, but people tended to stay away from it. And very little data in the southern hemisphere because, you know, it was the rich countries that did oceanography and they had a northern hemisphere and European bias. So, so what Argo, we found out? What we've found out is that we know a lot about the ocean currents and the state of the ocean that we didn't, so now we can use it for validating developing models. The main thing that people really care about is climate research, climate change. That's where a lot of the funding for Argo has come from. And Argo's now been in the water long enough to look at what's happened in the Argo area of a decade. And what we're seeing is warming in the top 500 metres of the ocean, it's, but the warming at that level is not really significant because there's so much variability in the shallow ocean, especially from things like El Nino. And then really a minimum in warming at about 500 metres where there's no sign, and then below that you're seeing gentle warming again. And that warming at depth is significant statistically and is about 0.025 degrees Celsius per decade. What could that do, the fact that there's this gentle increase in temperature? What could be the impact of that? Well... The key thing about the oceans and climate is that basically all of the heat energy that's going into the climate system is going into the oceans. If you do a breakup of heat energy as opposed to temperature, just the energy, then 93% of the changes in heat since the 1970s have gone into the ocean. 3% have gone into ice, melting ice. 3% have gone into warming up land masses and only 1% into the atmosphere. And that's basically because water is really good at absorbing and holding heat, whereas air isn't. 
So that 93% is in the oceans. If you don't measure the oceans, you're never going to understand the climate system. So you see that warming at depth, that means you're getting more heat energy into the whole global system. Does now, it expand as well? Does the water expand? Yes, it does. You get thermal expansion of water. Because warm water is less dense, it stands slightly taller, and so about half of sea level, 40 to 50% of sea level rise is, is called steric heating, where the water's warmed up, become less dense, and increased in volume. Interestingly enough, especially for a New Zealander, basically all of the warming is happening in the Southern Hemisphere. 20 degrees south and further south is, accounts for all of the global heat content. In the tropics, things are basically staying about the same in the last decade, and north of 20 degrees north, there's actually a, a very slight cooling, although probably not significant in the, in the last decade. So everything's happening in the Southern Hemisphere and the Southern Ocean. Why, why have they picked the Southern Ocean? Well, it's the biggest. It goes all the way around. In the Northern Hemisphere, you have continents getting in the way. It's also got the very strong westerly winds, so you get a lot of communication, a lot of atmospheric interaction with the ocean, so you can get heat loss and, and, and interaction that way, and water masses forming where you cool the water and then the water gets cold enough to sink. So there are good physical reasons for, for why you'd expect the Southern Ocean to dominate, but perhaps not to dominate as much as we're finding. Lastly, Philip, have you ever had anything eat one of your um, Because we don't get them back, it's probably a bit hard to tell. It'd be a bit indigestible, um, wouldn't it? It is a bit, but there have been apparently some recovered with shark bites. So yes, they probably do attract a bit of attention down there, but they're, because they're just noodling along with the currents, you know, these things aren't propelling themselves or anything, they're just, just hanging out, so they're not that interesting. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for bringing in the Argo capsule. Dr Phil Sutton. You're listening to The Naked Scientist this way up with me, Simon Morton, from Radio New Zealand National, and Dr Chris Smith. Now, from ocean temperatures to global temperatures, the US National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, that's NOAA, announced recently that June 2014 was the hottest since records began. The average global temperature then was 16.2 degrees C, which is 0.7 degrees C higher than the 20th century average in total and one twentieth of a degree higher than the previous warmest June in 2010. May was also a record breaker. Tim Naish is at the Antarctic Research Centre at Victoria University in Wellington, where he's looking at the effects of these very high temperatures on the Antarctic ice sheet. So uh, can you first tell us, Tim, a little bit about Antarctica? For instance, why is it special and how much water is locked up there? Sure. Well, I mean, Antarctica is special a bit for the reasons that, that Phil was talking about, is we know so little about it. And so it's a big part of the climate system that we, we really don't understand very well. It's surrounded by this deep, um, very well-mixed southern ocean that sort of keeps it cool. Um, it's got enormous ice sheets on it. If the ice sheet's entirely melted, you'd end up with around uh, about 65 metres of global sea level rise. That's because it's on land, and if it melted, it would go in the sea, not on land. It's not displacing any water already. Absolutely. That's, that's the ice that would displace and raise sea level. So it's, it's continental ice sitting on land. Someone or also said to me that there's also a gravity effect of the ice because there's such a massive mass mm. of of water there locked mm. in one place, it, it's gravitationally active and it pulls the ocean towards it a bit. So there's a bulge of ocean around Antarctica, meaning that sea levels on the rest of the world are a bit lower than they otherwise would be. Absolutely. So we tend to think of sea level rise as like the tide going up uniformly in the bath, but it's not. When we get sea level rise, depending on these gravitational effects, you're going to get higher sea levels in some part of the world and, and lower in other. And as you say, when you melt um, an ice sheet, so if we melt the Antarctic ice sheet, you're going to get higher, more sea level rise in the northern hemisphere because of that gravitational effect. 
So does that actually make predictions about what will happen or what the consequences would be quite difficult then? Yeah, it does. It's a challenge, um, and it's a really important challenge because, you know, a few centimetres makes a big difference to a lot of countries, and particularly, you know, low-lying islands. So um, a lot of effort goes into using models, computer models of how the Earth works, these gravitational um, interactions and processes, and how when you remove an ice sheet, the crust rebounds. So all of that has to be factored in when making projections for certain regions. So Phil was saying there that the Southern Ocean is heating. There's a lot of heat going there. This is something then that you are, this is happening, and you are then faced with measuring these ice sheets and looking at the rate of decline of the ice. How do you do that? The the warming ocean's our bogeyman. I mean, that's the big issue here. And and a famous oceanographer, Wally Broker, once said, to warm the ocean is an absolutely enormous thing, but to cool it is even bigger. So there's a certain amount of built-in climate change because of the sort of things Phil is talking about. We've got a huge mass that's warm. We've got an ice sheet that has its toes in and around all that warm water that's starting to get up onto the continental shelf. Not only that, a significant part of that ice sheet, which is on the continent, is also sitting on the continent below sea level. So as that warm ocean water gets in, we've got an issue with... um, with those marine parts of the ice sheet that we're particularly worried about. Is there evidence that's happening? Yes. And the ice is receding? Yes. What sort of rate? At quite dramatic rates in certain sectors of the West Antarctic ice sheet, which is the one we worry about. In fact, there were a couple of papers earlier in the year, one from NASA, where the statement was that potentially large parts of the West Antarctic ice sheet are already in a state or on the brink of irreversible collapse. Partly because of this inherited you know, this heat that's going to be in the ocean for a while and it's getting up there, but partly for other reasons related to the shape of that ice sheet and some runaway processes that, once you kick them off, are potentially very hard to stop. Does this mean it might sort of fall apart and then bits of it will detach and float away, which will accelerate the melting of those bits? So the whole thing goes into a sort of feedback loop then? Absolutely. There's a whole bunch of feedbacks you can talk about. You take away white and you leave with dark ocean, and that absorbs more heat. That's, a, that's an ice albedo positive feedback, so that's one of them. The feedback we're particularly worried about for this runaway effect is a little bit complicated to explain, but essentially um, as the ice sheet margin retreats into the interior, it's going into a big basin. And as you retreat into a big basin, you end up with this runaway effect whereby the edge of the ice sheet where the glacier meets the sea is getting higher and higher and higher as you go back into that basin. And essentially the discharge is proportional to the size of that gate. As the gate gets bigger and bigger, you get this exponential increase in the rate of loss. And we're going to lose more and more ice? We're going to lose more and more ice. Over what sort of time could this occur? This is, of course, the policy-relevant question, and it's the hardest one to answer. And it's the reason why this is the biggest issue still one of the big issues facing the IPCC when they do these climate change reports. You know, we've got an upper bound for sea level rise for the coming century, but the IPCC clearly state all bets are off if West Antarctica does something unpredictable if that ice sheet goes. So these recent papers and other science supports anything from... This is losing a, a fair chunk of the West Antarctic ice sheet, anything from 200 years to 1,000 years. So why do you think this year has been the hottest on record? What's going on? Well, global warming. Yeah. Yeah. What's what's responsible for that? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, the greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide in particular, is the one we're concerned with because it stays around for the longest. These are our emissions from the burning of fossil fuels. But some, some people say that some bits of Antarctica are getting colder. Yes. Is, is this the case, that it's not just uniformly everything's getting warmer, that some bits are actually colder? Yes. OK, so we're all pretty fixated on the Arctic, which is doing amazing things and warming very quickly. The, the Antarctic is not. And that's because of this ocean um, that is keeping it cool, and it's taking up this enormous amount of heat. 90% of that heat has gone into the ocean, and most of it into the Southern Ocean. So that's essentially suppressing the surface warming around Antarctica. So on average, not warming any faster than the rest of the planet, but in certain areas, it's going, it's going off. I mean, it's, it's got some real hotspots like the Antarctic Peninsula where um, we've been seeing these catastrophic collapses of ice shelves and these amazing things happen. Your challenge there is to try and put some metrics on this, is it? There's three ways. One is we, we use satellite Satellites. Satellites can weigh, essentially weigh the ice sheet, tell us the mass of the ice sheet and how that's changing. But they've only been around 10 years. Really good records, maybe 15 to 20 years if you push it back. And they're seeing an acceleration in the loss of ice. But is it valid to then extrapolate that out for 100 years and say that that's valid for sea level rise? That's one way. The other way is we can model it with computers, best physical understanding and processes... But they're all over the place. They tell us that, fortunately they get the sign right, they tell us that we're going to get ice melting, but it ra- there's a big range on how much and how fast. Another way is we can drill back in time, we can go back to times in the past that are very similar to the climate we have now or may have when we last had 400 parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We can, we can use our geological tools and work out what the world looked like, what happened to the ice sheets. Last time we were like that was three million years ago. Well, thank you, Tim Nation. Tim is from the Antarctic Research Centre at Victoria University. The kiwi is the national symbol of New Zealand. It's about the same size as a chicken with a long curved beak and it can't fly. But unlike chickens, the kiwi is an endangered species, which means keeping tabs on the population is critically important so scientists can monitor the effects of conservation efforts. Ed Abraham of Dragonfly Science is a computer scientist who began life as a theoretical physicist working with Stephen Hawking in Cambridge, and he's developed a neat way of measuring kiwi populations using what he dubs dark Data sounds ominous. What's that? <laughs> right, so you know, we live in the computer age, and uh, all over the world people are using their computers to collect data, and, and they're hooping it all up, and most of it is unstructured, and they just tuck it away on their hard drives, and it sits there, and it's literally dark data. What, what do you mean by unstructured data? Unstructured. It hasn't got any, any, any labels on it. People don't really know what it is. They, they go out and take some video or, or, or record something and then, and then store it away. <laughs> Uh, and, and so retrieving it and, and putting all that information to use becomes a problem. This is unlike liked data, which might be like a Facebook like or, or a like or a Twitter update, which is measurable. It's taken by an advertiser and then used. To, yeah. This is a signal that's happening, and, and we're not really sure how to classify it or how to... Yeah, it's not being put to use, essentially. So, you know, businesses go and collect data for their for their business purposes, and they know what that is. But they, they're gathering all this other stuff at the same time on their file systems and hard drives and so on and not putting it to use, and that's the data. And people think that you know, 95% of the data that's collected is in this unused state. And how much dark data is there, then? Put some numbers on it. Globally, they talk about zettabytes, zettabytes, which is billions of terabytes a year now being, being produced. 
And you think of, if you think of 95% of that as, uh, as, as being collected but not really put to use, it's a, it becomes quite a big resource. And so uh, what you're saying is we, we've got this massive amount of data. It's all unstructured, but it's potentially mineable. We could go in there and get some useful information out yeah, of it if we right. knew how. Yeah, that's right. That's so right. how do you propose to do that? Luckily, you know, computers make the problem and they also come to the rescue. And, and so uh, there's machine learning techniques are the, are the solution. And the machine learning is... Um, about training computers to do the kinds of things that, that people are good at, you know, to, uh, to, to look at an image and, and identify it as being a cat, you know, so you can go to the internet and find all my, the My computer's all the cat not very good at doing the washing up, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, uh, so, so the, 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 the thing about these machine learning techniques is maybe, maybe you need to teach your computer, that's right, that's a, the that's a secret. So you, uh, rather than... Um, Rather than giving lots of rules to say what your cat looks like, you know, to tell, tell it you've got ears and whiskers and so on, you show it pictures of a cat, and you show it repeated pictures, and it learns what, what is typical about those images and is able to generalise it from that to, to the to So the we could pictures. screen yeah. lots and lots of images, yeah. and it, it would very quickly be able to draw out something that looked cat-like. It had the characteristic features of a cat. Yeah, that's right, without knowing... Without knowing you know quite why. I wouldn't be able to tell you why. That's, I mean, we yeah. need more cats on the internet, don't we? I mean, <laughs> this, I've had a eureka moment here. Can I get a copy of whatever this machine learned? Do you do it on a USB or a CD-ROM? They... <laughs> There's that dark data right there. Lots of cats, that's what it is. But you are using this not for images of cats. Are You've used this specifically here in the New Zealand bush. Yeah, so... Um, so uh, I'm involved in a, in a in a project that's reintroducing kiwi into the into the Rimataka, so about uh, 20 miles from here. And I can recommend that anyone in the audience who likes to get involved gets involved. <laughs> it's really great. You get out in the bush and you might get to hold a kiwi and so on. Yeah, the project is, appears to be quite successful, but of course now the problem is how do we know that it's been successful? Uh, and where are those birds going to go? And how do we keep keep track of them? You know, the kiwi they come out at night. And they live in burrows, so they're particularly hard birds to, to count. And that's, yeah, this, this, uh, this comes into play. We've put out sound recorders, and, uh, and the idea is that we can record their calls at night. And, um, and of course, then we've just made another problem, because now we've put out our recorders, and now we've ended up with 12,000 hours of, of audio recording. <laughs> Dark data. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So what you're saying, you, you now need to be able to go through those audio recordings and yeah. say, Mr. Computer, can you please tell me, in here, is there evidence in, in all this mass of data that I don't want to listen to? Yeah. Is there evidence of a kiwi in there? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. How many are there? Where are they? Yeah. Now, you've got this... You call this yeah. a neural network yeah. as well. I remember yeah. that's a term when I thought, oh, neural network, machine learning, it's all sci-fi we're going in. But this is running on a laptop, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And right. you've, got, you've got a bit of a demo here. And we're going to have a listen to, actually, this is a Kiwi call from the bush. Yeah, from, from the bush, yeah. Not far from, actually, where we are right at the moment. So let's, let's have a listen. And, and, Ed, you can talk through what we're seeing uh, on the screen because he's got okay. a, a little bit of okay. software here that's running, and, and Ed will describe what happens. This is a little uh, a display for a neural network that's made by 
Douglas Bagnell, who might be in the audience somewhere. I think I had that on my Atari. In yeah, that's game. right. I know. That looks like I know. that game, I know. Bat and Ball. I know. Pong. That's right. Pong. Yeah, Pong. There's a thing sliding backwards and forwards across the screen. So what, what's going on? What's going on is it's, is, is it's, uh, it, it, it's listening for, it's listening for uh, Kiwi, essentially. And, of course, it's suddenly not behaving. Because if it goes yellow, it's supposed to be hearing one, and I can't hear one hear one here. So left is meant to be no kiwi, and on the right-hand side, it's hearing a kiwi. So we're going to have a play, of what, play and see how that works, essentially. So you're going to play yeah. it to kiwi? I'm going to play you a kiwi. I've got a kiwi on my phone. Yeah, okay. so this is a recording that we and took what, in the room. And you've trained the network in the computer. This is the sort of sound to kiwi. Yeah, makes. that's so right. So it's trying to match up the sound it's pulling in from the recording. Yeah, that's right. With Your neural network had left the building for a minute. <laughs> did it work? So, is it yeah, yeah, it did. It went, it, went, it went over there and, 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 and went yellow. And, and, and this, uh, this, this neural network is a recurrent neural network. So um, it's, it's uh, listening to the sound, and it's not in a hurry to make up its mind. It's listening to the sound, it's changing its internal state, and as the more sound comes along, and it mixes that with its past internal state, and it updates its idea of whether or not it's listening to a Kiwi. So it takes a little bit to make its mind. How yeah. accurate is it? Um, uh, it's kind of 95%. Kind of so, 95%. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That. Yeah, yeah, I'm that's happy right. 95%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's really interesting is you have been using this to essentially go out and work out how much of the Te Reo Modi language has been spoken on New Zealand media using this similar technology. Well, yeah, so um, we, 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 we did a project last year for Tamanga Paho, who are the... Māori Broadcasting Agency. They're interested in how much Māori is being spoken, and it's the same, uh, same method. You, you feed it uh, bits of radio that are in English or Māori or, 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 uh, or music, and it's able to, um, it's able to tell uh, which, which, is, which language has been spoken. And it worked really well at that, and it was great. Radio New Zealand would have done pretty well, I hope. Yeah, that's right. Compared to the rock. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, thanks so much, Ed Abraham from Dragonfly Science. Thanks, Ed. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you very much to Radio New Zealand, Simon Morton, and producer Richard Scott. If you'd like to get in touch with us, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com.